Well, good morning, church. You all may be seated. My name is Mark Baker, and I'm a pastor, the pastor of equipping at Risen Northwest. And starting June 1st, I'm going to be also starting to work for the Risen Collective. So I'm very excited to be with you all this morning. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but in terms of the Risen Collective, we seek to support one another in our two churches and be a resource for one another and just have some, some togetherness in our two churches as we're here laboring for the gospel and, and seeking to honor God in gathering together. And we also want to be a group of people, a collective that is all about church planting. We know that these statistics say that one of the most effective ways to reach the loss for the gospel is through new church plants. And so part of the work I'll be doing is working together for our two churches into making the Risen Collective a, a good place and a place that future church planters want to come and do a residency and work together for the sake of the gospel so that, Lord willing, we can continue to plant churches in our area and who knows, maybe all over the world. So I'm very excited to get to know you all and get to be a part of this great work that God is doing. I do want to tell you a little bit about me, a little bit about my family. So I've been married to Ashley for 15 years. Put the picture up there if you want. Uh, we have five kids. And so Ashley and I met, we knew each other in high school, but we really got to know each other when we both went to the same Bible college. And we were the same major, had a bunch of the same classes together, and we took a Greek class together. And Greek is the language of love, and so the rest was history after that. So we, we had these study sessions that would just go on forever, and believe it or not, we did actually study some, but we also talked and got to know each other a lot. At the Bible college, they talked a lot about being fruitful and multiplying, so we have five kids from the ages of 13 to 4. Elias, Owen, Eleanor, Alistair, and Atticus. And they really wish they could be here this morning. Ashley is serving with Risen Kids at Risen Northwest, but Lord willing, hopefully I'll be able to come here again and you all can meet the whole family. Well, let me pray for us and I'll ask God's help as we spend some time in his word this morning. Father, we do come before you this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. And as we have been uh, worshiping through your word, and as we have been greeting one another this morning, we thank you that all of this, the whole reason that we're gathering this morning for this Memorial Day weekend is because we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you and from your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading and the proclamation of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see more of who you are, that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to start out with a question this morning. What is it that Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, and Frodo Baggins all have in common? So they're main characters in some of the most popular stories that have been told in the past century or so. But why is it that these stories are so popular? Why do we resonate with them so much? So the hero in each one of these stories is adopted or taken in by a family member. And some of the relatives are kind and compassionate, but some of them are not, depending on the story. But the common theme remains, that the one who is adopted has a specific destiny, and that hero goes on to save the world. So these characters were born into a world where there's this growing and foreboding sense of evil that is threatening to take over. 
And the world is in need of a savior. And these heroes step into that role. And we all rejoice when good conquers over evil. And here's the point. I think that these stories resonate with us because they're shadows of the greatest story ever told. That they all hint towards this great story that we have in front of us today. Our passage for today in Luke 1 tells us of a story of a baby who will bring salvation to the world. And he was adopted by Joseph. Joseph wasn't his biological father, but he adopted him as a part of God's plan. Mary's conception of this child is a miracle, as we just heard about. And more than that, this child is not just, excuse me, not just any child. This child is the king. This is a story of the birth of a king and the story of a kingdom. Ultimately, this story is not just a story for our amusement. Stories do more than that. Stories shape our affections. Generations and communities are formed and shaped by the stories that they tell. And so my goal for this morning as we look at this section of the story is not only to understand the story for its beauty, but I want to be formed and shaped by this story. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would do a work on our hearts this morning and shape our affections and our allegiance for King Jesus as we spend time in God's word this morning. So I want to shape our time in this passage by asking three questions. Question one, who is this king? Question two, what does this king do? And question three, what is our response? Who is this king? What does he do? And what is our response? So who is this king? Well, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and gives her this world-shaking announcement. Let me read again from Luke 1, 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So if we kind of parse this out, we can see that Gabriel is saying five things to Mary. He says he will be great that this son will be called the son of the Most High, that he will sit on David's throne, that he will reign over the house of Jacob, and that his kingdom will never end. And you might say, well, that sounds nice. I'm kind of familiar with that. But what does it all mean? Well, first, it means that this son who's given to Mary is not just a miracle son, but he is divine. He is very God of very God. When you look at these descriptions, they point not only to the fact that this baby will be a deliverer of the people, but also that he is God himself. Listen to how commentator James Edwards puts it. He says, all five divine declarations of Gabriel, four of which alone characterize God, are applied expressly to Jesus. The two great redemptive offices in Israel, the Messiah and the Son of God, will in Mary's womb converge in the incarnation of Jesus, who will finally and fully complete the redemption of Israel. Second, this divine Son will bring about the Old Testament expectation of a king. So every good story has to have a couple good backstories, right? A couple good flashbacks. 
And so to understand what Gabriel is saying here, we have to see two flashbacks from the Old Testament. Flashback number one from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So to set the stage, David is king over Israel at this point, and he comes to God and he says, God, I want to build you a house. I live in a cedar house, but you still live in a tent. I want to build a house for you, God. And then God comes and he says, thank you for that request, but actually, David, no, you are not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a dynasty for you. Listen to what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God says, no, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build a house, a dynasty for you, one where your descendants will always be on the throne. The house of David is going to look different from the house of Saul. If you remember the story, Saul was king, but then God took the dynasty from him. God took the throne from Saul because he sinned against God. But how is David different? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that David sins grievously against God. How come God doesn't take away the dynasty from David? The difference is because of God himself. God says, my steadfast love will never depart from David. And so we're kind of in a conundrum because we know that God does not tolerate sin. We know that God does not have any excuses for sin, but we also know that every single human being is going to be sinful. So there are going to be sinful people on the throne of David. So what is God going to do? Well, the answer is that God himself is going to have to sit on David's throne. God himself is the only one who can sit on David's throne for it to last for forever. And that's exactly what God does through Jesus. So that's the first flashback. When Gabriel tells, says that God will give him to the, th- the throne of his father, David. Second flashback from Daniel chapter 2. So many years after David, God's people found themselves in exile. So David was a good king, a man after God's own heart, but then there's lots of kings after him where they fall into great sin and then they go into exile that God sends the Babylonians and they destroy the temple and they destroy the throne and they, and they take God's people into exile. And then God's people are wondering, is God faithful to his promises? I just want to pause here for a second and and address the fact that maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're wondering, is God going to be faithful to his promises? Because based on my life, it sure doesn't look like it. Based on where I am right now, I feel like I'm in personal exile. And I have no idea how God is going to be faithful to his promises. Well, here's the good news. You fit into this story too. Because of Jesus, you fit into the story, and he has good planned for you. 
So we'll get to that a little bit later, but I just want to plant a flag there now that you fit into this story, and it's really, really good news. So back to our flashback, Daniel chapter 2. So the king of Babylon, so this is the king of the nation that takes over the people of God and brings them into Babylon. He has this dream, and the dream is of a statue, and the statue is made up of different precious metals in different parts, and the head is of gold, and its chest and arms are of silver, the middle and thighs are made of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet mixed with iron and clay. And then God raises up Daniel to interpret this dream, and he says that this statue is about the kingdoms of the earth, and the head of gold represents Babylon, and then the other parts of the statue are the other world leaders that will come in the future. Many scholars believe that it refers to Medo-Persia and Greek and Greece and Rome. But there's another part of the dream. At the end, there's this stone not cut by human hands. And the stone comes and it crashes into the statue and it destroys the statue. And then the stone grows into a mountain and that mountain grows to fill the entire earth. And this is how Daniel interprets this part of the dream. Daniel 2, 44, he says, And in the, the days of the, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is an amazing promise. Sometimes we get so caught up in all the little details of our lives that we forget to take a step back. Kingdoms of the earth will come and go. It seems like the kingdoms are going to last forever, but they won't. There's only one kingdom that will last forever, and that's God's kingdom. So we're beginning to see headlines about the 2024 presidential election. We're beginning to hear stories of this person is running, and we're wondering what it's going to be like. And yes, we need to be aware of the political climate around us. I think that we need to seek the welfare of the city, like God tells Jeremiah. But it all needs to be framed by the fact that God's kingdom will never fail. Other kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will last forever. And Jesus is king over that kingdom. So with these two flashbacks in mind, we can now see a little bit better of what this baby boy will be, of who he will be as king. He's divine. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He will sit on David's throne and his kingdom will never end. So that's the first question. Who is this king? Now we'll move to the second question. What does this king do? So at the birth of the true king, as the birth of the true king is announced, kind of Luke's subtext in all of these birth announcements is that this king is not going to be like King Herod. King Herod is the king who's, who's the king when Jesus is born, but they're totally different kings. King Herod was a puppet king. He served the Roman Empire, and he was really paranoid. He was always thinking that someone was going to take over his throne. But in contrast, King Jesus has life in himself. He's the Almighty, and his kingdom will never end. So therefore, he gives himself away. He's not paranoid that someone's going to take his throne away from him. 
He rules the whole world. He spoke the world into existence. No one can take his kingdom away from him. So what does he do? He comes to the weak and the broken and the outsider. That's one of the things that we're going to see over and over again in Luke's gospel. That the gospel invitation goes out far and wide. And most often it's to the weak and the broken and the marginalized who have eyes to see that Jesus is the son of David. So we begin to see how this plays out in our passage. So Gabriel is one of the chief angels in God's heavenly court. And God sends Gabriel to make this announcement of the coming king. But he goes to a little podunk town called Nazareth. Nazareth has a population of about 500 during this time. And Luke even has to mention that Nazareth is a town of Galilee because nobody, nobody even knows where Nazareth is. So he has to tell us that it's by Galilee. The most important royal birth announcement in the world was given to a teenage girl in a no-name town. This is a different kind of king who's come to earth. We've already seen one miraculous conception in Luke's gospel. We saw it in the passage right before this, where Elizabeth in her old age miraculously conceives. And this story is an echo of many Old Testament miraculous conceptions. So we think of Isaac, we think of Samuel, we think of Samson, that God loves to make something out of nothing. Isn't that amazing? You feel like you have nothing in your life right now? You're in the exact right place for God to, to work, for God to act, and for you not to get confused that maybe it was partially you and partially God. God loves to take people who have nothing, who have no way out, and then he work, works his miracles so that we can see that all the glory and the praise be to God. Think about the places that feel barren in your life. Maybe it's physical barrenness or fill in, you fill in the blank. Whatever brokenness and barrenness that you're experiencing. In your pain, in your brokenness, in your barrenness, God is giving you the gift of sight to see his kingdom for what it really is. God loves you so much that sometimes he gives hard things in your life to give you the gift of sight so that you can see that Jesus is the true king. So it's when we think that we have something that our eyes are blinded to who Jesus truly is. And so the kingdom of God is that rock that's not made with human hands that will crush every earthly kingdom. And that's the kind of king that Jesus is and this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. But every faithful Jew who heard of these promises of the kingdom of God was asking, how's it gonna crush the power of the Romans? We're under the thumb of the Roman Empire. What are you gonna do for us, Messiah? How are you gonna set us free? <clears throat> Jesus shows that he wins by laying down his life. He defeats every earthly power through sacrifice and surrender. So of the three heroes that I mentioned at the beginning of this message, Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, Frodo Baggins, I think that Frodo Baggins gets to the closest of what we see here in this passage. You see, Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter, they both discover that they have a superpower. Luke has the force, Harry has magic, but Frodo has no superpower that elevates him above his enemies. 
The only superpower that Frodo has is that he willingly lays down the power that's given to him. Instead of using the ring for his own gain, he's, will, he's willing to destroy the ring and that's how he saves the world. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom where you to gain your life by losing it. God demonstrates this over and over again by coming to the weak and the marginalized in society and inviting them to a kingdom that will never be shaken, that will never be taken away. And with the miraculous conception of Jesus, God is saying that he's even doing something new. He's doing something different than with Abraham and Isaac and even than with Zechariah and Elizabeth. In many ways, Luke depicts Zechariah and Elizabeth as the new Abraham and Sarah. They're old, they're faithful God followers, and they're barren. And yes, they're in great need, but Zechariah has a good job. He's respected in his community. They're probably decently financially stable. But with Mary, God does something even more amazing. Mary has nothing. She doesn't have a job. If she's pregnant out of wedlock, she would surely endure shame and poverty her whole life. Yet even still, facing all this, Mary humbly accepts. She says in verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. This is what the king does. He sees the barren and he fills them with new life. So we've seen who our king is, seen what our king does, and now we're going to look at what is our response? How should we respond in light of the promise of this coming king? And I think that Luke is inviting us to see how Mary responds and then to respond like that. So I think Mary does three things well here. First, instead of doubt, Mary presses in. She doesn't have a heart posture of doubt. She has a heart posture of pressing in to God. So when Gabriel announces this plan to Mary, he asks, how will, she asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And what's interesting about this question is Zechariah asks his own version of this same question in the passage right before this. Yet Zechariah, in verse 18 of Luke 1, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. But Zechariah receives a rebuke from Gabriel, whereas Mary gets an answer. So why does Mary get an answer for asking a very similar question? I think this difference leads us to assume that Mary's heart posture is one of pressing in instead of a heart posture of doubt. And maybe you've experienced something like this just in your everyday interactions. Maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's with one of your kids. So people, two different people can ask almost the exact same question and they have two very different responses based on the answer that's given. One has a heart posture of doubt and you might give a really good answer to the question that they ask and they're still not satisfied. And it's almost like any question that you answer, they're not gonna be satisfied because of their heart posture of doubt. But then there's other times where you've built trust with that person and you maybe, maybe you're in a situation where you can't give the full answer. But even when you give a little answer that you have, they're satisfied because they trust in you as a person. That's the heart posture of pressing in. 
Let's be a people who press in to God. We're not going to have a God's eye view of things. We're not going to have all the answers. And I just want to free you up from, from having the pressure of feeling like you have to have the God's eyed view of things. There's so many questions that people ask. And we don't know the answer to them as Christians. Why does God do this? Why does God do that? You can say, I don't know. I'm, I'm not God. And if I fully understand God, then I might be on the same plane with God. And that's certainly not the case. So don't let anyone ever pressure you into having a God's eye view of things. And when we press into God and we, when we ask for questions, he's not always going to give us answers that completely satisfy our questions. But he is going to give us himself. We, we can have the trust in God and in his purposes. There's a way to press into God without a spirit of doubt where we learn more of his character. We learn more of who he is. I think the Psalms model that really well for us. About one-third of the Psalms can be classified as lament Psalms where the psalmist is lamenting the state of the world. They start out like Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? Or they ask really good questions like, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Those are really good questions to ask and to lament about the state of our world. But then as you go through the psalm, you rarely get an answer. But almost always in those lament psalms, there's going to be a turn. There's going to be a turn where the psalmist says, but you, O Lord, are good. But you, O Lord, are trustworthy. And that's the benefit of going to God in lament. That's the benefit of pressing into God with the heart posture of trust. Is that we might not get our answers fully answered to our, satis to our satisfaction, but we get more of God. When we press into God like this, we get a greater vision of who God is. We get a vision of God that satisfies us even when we don't know all the answers. And in the story of God, God is the answer. And so when we get more of him, we get the true answer. And that's exactly the kind of answer that Mary gets. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that Mary gets her questions answered at this point. I don't think she's like, oh yeah, I forgot. The other way of getting a kid is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I forgot about that option. I don't think she got her questions answered. But what she got was more of God. And that's what she needed. So first, Mary presses in with a heart posture of trust. Second, Mary keeps her eyes on God and not on herself. We know that even when Mary is greatly troubled by what she sees and hears, she quietly ponders things in her heart to discern what God might be up to. And as she ponders these things in her heart, one of the things that I think Mary might have learned from God is in this message. Gabriel uses the word overshadow. It's a pretty rare word. It's not a word that's used often in the Bible, but it is used to describe when the glory cloud overshadows the holy place in the tabernacle. And so Mary gets this picture of how God himself will over, overshadow her 
But now instead of overshadowing a holy place, God is overshadowing a holy person. God himself will be in Mary's womb through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit. Mary still doesn't know exactly how it's going to work, but she's pressed into God and she keeps her eyes on God and not on herself. And Gabriel tells her that this boy's name will be Jesus, which means God will save. God will save. Mary is not just looking to this boy as her son, but she's also looking to him as her savior. Because of these promises of God, she knows that whatever shame and poverty she might face, he is worth it because he's not only the savior of the world, but he is also her savior. So Mary presses in. She keeps her eyes on God, not on herself. And finally, Mary puts her trust in God's word. Mary puts her trust in God's word. So another key promise that Gabriel gives to Mary comes from verse 37. Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And the way that this is translated is the original language, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And so this is a good translation to translate it, nothing will be impossible with God. But more literally, it could also be translated, no word of God lacks power. No word of God lacks power. And so then Mary responds to this declaration. No word of God lacks power? Okay. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That word that doesn't lack power, then I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm going to say yes. Let it be to me according to your word. She believes that God's word is powerful, so she humbly submits herself to the word of God. So that's the invitation for us today. Press into God. Keep your eyes on God. Trust in his word. As we close, I just have three thoughts for you to latch on to, three thoughts for how you might respond, that maybe you can latch on to one or two of them and ask God to do a work in your heart based on the word that we've heard from God this morning. First, God's word creates something out of nothing. God's word creates something out of nothing. God created the world with his word. There was a point when it was just God. Light didn't even exist. There was just nothingness outside of God. And then God says, let there be light, and light existed. God speaks the universe into existence and the book of Hebrews tells us that he continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. The universe is still running right now because God is still upholding it by the word of his power. So, are there places in you that feel like a void? Are there places where God is calling you to walk and it feels impossible I remember counseling a guy and, and he said, I, I just can't do it. It feels like I have to grow another limb. And yes, that's true. If you think that your walk with God is about you looking deep inside yourself and trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that's not how to walk with Jesus. The walk with Jesus says, yes, I have nothing. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. 
Give me your word so that I can live it out according to that powerful word. Breathe out Mary's prayer. Let it be to me according to your word. God will supply everything you need according to his glorious riches in Christ. Second, God's word provides forgiveness. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Abel was the first person to be murdered in the Bible, only took the, the family two people for a murder to happen. And then Hebrews says that Abel's blood speaks a word of guilt over Cain, his murderer. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood because Jesus' blood speaks a word of forgiveness over our guilty stains. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Do you feel burdened by the guilt of your sin? Come to Jesus. Breathe out Mary's prayer. Let it be to me according to your word. He is the one who will save. That's what his name means. Come to him and receive his salvation. Third and finally, God's word gives a home to the outsider. You feel like you're on the outside? Have you been rejected or forsaken by people you love? Jesus knows what it's like to be, to be betrayed by a close friend. Jesus came for you. You're not in the way. You're not in a nuisance to him. You're the reason he came. He came for you. As we'll see all throughout the Gospel of Luke, he, he walks a path like this, and he knows exactly where he's going. He's going out of his way to get to people who think that they're in the way. And then he speaks his word of life over them. You're not in the way. You're not a nuisance. You're not a bother. Come to Jesus. You're the, the reason he came. Breathe out Mary's prayer. Let it be to me according to your word. This time let me invite the band back up and I'll pray and then we'll spend some time engaging with this word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a word. You have not left us without a word of hope, a word of instruction, a word of salvation, but you have given us your word through the person of your Son, Jesus. So Lord, we ask that you would allow your spirit to minister to us now. Help us to receive your word. Speak to our hearts. Minister to our hearts. Would you uphold the brokenhearted this morning? Would you strip away the calluses of those who are too familiar with Jesus this morning? Would you let us all breathe out this prayer? Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to us according to your word. Let it be to Risen Church according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.